The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. Our sermon text this morning is from Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who, is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, as Michael reminded the children and us last week, your word is sweeter than honey and more to be desired than gold. Sometimes, Father, that word is heavy and difficult. Nevertheless, it's always good. And so... We pray that you would help us to see this morning your goodness in this word, that, as you have promised, through the encouragement of these scriptures, we might have hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important to remember um, that this passage is about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one born of Mary and raised in Galilee. If you followed along with Connie's reading, you saw that this one is called the Word of God, just as he is in the Gospel of John. 
The name that's written on his robe and thigh is the one given to him elsewhere, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, from the earliest days, the very earliest commentary we have on the book of Revelation, Ocumenius in the 6th century, uh, noted that, made a good case, that this rider on this white horse is the risen Christ, the one who has been raised bodily and, and has ascended up into heaven. The robe that he wears, the mount carrying him, all point to his humanity. But in his humanity, this is a humanity that is exalted. He is clothed with all the authority with which he executes the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is the God-man, the one who is fully man forever and yet is also fully God. We've come off a season recently of singing things like away in the manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head, and we don't retract a single word of that. But the remarkable truth of the incarnation is that the one who had that sweet head and sweet body veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, the incarnate deity from a child. He was God. And now in this vision of wrath and fury, it is the same person, the same, uh, the, the same one who walked the earth. It is this child who, is now grow, who grew and died and was resurrected and has been enthroned in glory. This is the one who was the awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus the Messiah, who was and is and is to come, and in his person is coming to judge the earth. It is right, we often uh, speak of how much we long for his coming. Um, you know, Elizabeth, as she spoke, said, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, we want him to come. And yet we also need to understand what it is we long for. Let's be certain of that. We said a couple of weeks ago on Christmas that when he comes, he comes to fling peace all over the earth. But as well, he comes to bring judgment and vengeance. He is the Messiah. He bears the staff of a shepherd. But also, he bears the rod of God's vengeance and wrath. And as odd as this may sound, this is both a beautiful as well as a terrible thing. The Messiah's vengeance assures Christians of a world that is ordered and fair and of a care that is secure and safe. But that vengeance is terrible. There is a severity and terror in His coming. And yet, under the rod of His rule, we who trust in Christ can also find security in his staff. The thing that we all need to notice as we come to this text is that the world cannot escape the Messiah's vengeance. In fact, none of us escape the Messiah's vengeance. It is real. The Messiah's vengeance is real. John sees here a man on a white horse. I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
If we stopped there and read no further, it's a sweet picture. Who doesn't like seeing a mounted rider? But this was one who was coming to execute judgment. This is a man of war. The text goes on and says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. And it goes on to say, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that is crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's a frightening appearance, a frightening apparition of one who is not nameless, but whose name is known only to himself and who bears absolute authority, wearing the crowns of many and multiple kings. He is clothed in a robe, verse 13, that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And he is not alone in this appearance. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This text speaks of a future, a real and genuine future, where the Messiah, Jesus, comes, we see in verse 15, with a rod of iron. And in 16, he, we read, he comes to rule as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in verse 15, he comes to strike the nations and to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. String those words together, ponder them. The wrath, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He is bringing judgment along with the host of heaven. And that judgment is the outpouring of the wrath of God. And particularly this is poured out against, we read in verse 19, um, against the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies who were gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. Those who are opposed to God, who have been opposed to God, who situate themselves as those opposed to God. God, through his Messiah, is bringing upon them their defeat. The battle, this ageless battle that began in the Garden of Eden, this ageless battle will end, will terminate with the fierce judgment and fiery vengeance of the Messiah as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That language, by the way, was codified in a hymn that, along with language from Revelation 14, and applied to this notion, this erroneous notion, that somehow the U.S. North was bringing God's vengeance upon the U.S. South during the Civil War. That was child's play. This is much broader, much more terrible. And in the end, it falls on North and South. Men and women, great and small, kings and slaves. We do speak of this, by the way. We don't think much about it, I don't think, when we speak of it. We spoke of this earlier when we recited the Apostles' Creed, where we said that he will come to judge the living and the dead. We do the same thing with the Nicene Creed. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Jesus the Messiah will come bringing the full fury of the wrath of God upon the earth. It is a terrifying reality that we're reticent to consider, reticent to reflect upon, hesitant to think much about. 
Some of us may even struggle to, to, to grasp the fact that God could be a God with wrath and fury at all. We need to understand this is not a sudden thing. Unlike persons, God, I mean, unlike humans, God does not fly off the handle. His wrath and fury is not something eruptive. It is not a surprise. It is not something we might find in, per, in humans where we say something wrong and boom, there's just an explosion. No, the wrath and fury of God is his settled stance against those who do harm to his name and to his works. It is a set and fixed attitude of derisive condemnation and absolute rejection of those persons and things who would set foot in his garden and do anything that would bring ugliness to the beauty that he has woven into it. Now, this includes, of course, the initial act of desecration wrought by the serpent, the beast at that time so long ago when he slithered up to Eve in the Garden of Eden. But it includes every imitative act of destruction since. It includes, and we, we, you know, this list would be endless, infinite, but it includes the enslavement of Abraham's descendants in Egypt as well as the enslavements of Africans in America. It includes the bitter jealousy of the leaders of Israel and their Roman counterparts who brought Jesus to the cross. It includes the maniacal zeal that drove the Hmong people out of Vietnam, the Rohingya, Rohingya out of Burma, and the Cherokees out of Georgia. It includes the lust that is driving an international sex trade, enslaving children and women to satisfy the demands of a largely American pornography habit and the greed that is fueling a, a host of other vices, both socially acceptable ones and those that are not. The fury of the wrath of God Almighty is poised to bring vengeance upon these and every other human act that has vented ugliness all across the beauty of God's creation. And that means it is poised to bring judgment on me and on you for all of our acts of holy, unholy passion, for every destructive word we've breathed into our homes, every time that we have struck out at our children or our spouses, every time that we have hidden or manipulated the truth, every time that we have walked past a person in need, we don't escape and we cannot escape the fury of the wrath of God, nor should we? We preach, we claim, we proclaim, we rest on the fact, we say, that vengeance is the Lord's. Well, this is the Lord's vengeance. And it is aimed at those who stand opposed to Him. It is aimed at those who bring ugliness into His beauty. It is aimed even to those who think of themselves as His friends. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are even those who believe themselves the friends of God who claim title to the kingdom of heaven who will fall under the fury of God's wrath. The mistake we make is to assume that this is not real or will never be real. But that's a terrible and a tragic mistake this is an uncomfortable truth, an uncomfortable thought. 
but it's nothing that should be set aside lightly. There is, the, there is a judgment of God that is brought through the Messiah, and the Messiah's vengeance is very, very real. It may not play out in the way that we picture it. After all, these are pictures, right? A white horse and armies is an image that was given to John by which he can proclaim to us that which very, very absolutely will play out. That there will be the vengeance of God against all of that which is opposed to him. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Messiah's vengeance is real. That's the easy part. Because it is also far more awful than we can imagine. What follows in this text is a hideous image. It is so extreme that we want to dismiss it as mere fantasy. We dare not. Look at verse 17. A part of this same overall vision, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of the Lord. This, of course, makes this a parody, a parody of sorts of the feast that was mentioned just in the previous chapter or previous section that the people of God in heaven are gathered together for the feast of the, of the marriage supper of the Lamb and being fed by the Messiah. This is so clearly the upside down of that. These birds are called together, verse 19, sorry, 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Humans are not the guests at this feast. They are the main course. And these aren't people drawn from some particular strata of human society. This is not a particular judgment uh, uh, um, um, reserved for kings and rulers and pastors. This, is, this is in, in, encompasses all of us. All persons, particularly those subject to this, were the beast and his false prophet, and all who were aligned with them. In verse 20, the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. All of this is done to all of those opposed to the beauty of God's creative work. All of those who have sought to overturn the beautiful work of God are subject to this awful imagery of the vengeance of God. And I think it's important, very important for us to notice the variety of imagery that is used here. Sorry. Okay. Um, there's, there's a mixture of, of imagery. We, we've just read that these two, that the, the beast and the prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds gorged with their flesh. 
there is a multitude of imagery here, multitude of imagery that applies to the same messianic vengeance. I said before, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I am unskilled to take the clues of Scripture to form some concrete idea of eternity other than it will be eternal pleasure in the very presence of God. There's lots of imagery used in Scripture to try to convey to us the beauty of that, the wonder of that, the glory of that, the satisfaction of that. But those are all inadequate pieces. The, scripture, the writers of Scripture have at their disposal the images we have to try to convey to us something that is far greater than anything we have. The same is true here. The scripture gives us imagery and pictures to describe the fate of those who stand in opposition to God. We would be wrong to take those pictures, that imagery, and to somehow uh, imagine that we can compose this concrete, accurate vision of the eternal fate of those who reject God. Just as we would be wrong to say, oh, definitely heaven have, has these streets of gold and the per gates are made out of pearl. That's imagery to convey the richness of the glory in heaven. So what is the place of the unbeliever? What is hell? Is it a lake of fire? This says so. Is it an experience of birds eating flesh? This says so. Well, which is it? Both images are used here, and that underscores the fact that they are images, that the writers of Scripture are trying to grasp what they can to convey something of the awful, terrible, uh, unrelenting reality that is the vengeance of God. And so we are unskilled to take the clues of Scripture on this count and form a concrete image of hell other that it will be eternal unhappiness for those cast out of the presence of God. And that, for creatures who were created to have and find their fullness in His presence, will be so fundamentally horrifying that these are the best images that the writers of Scripture can come up with to represent it. They are metaphors for something, but something more terrible than any of us would want to imagine. And I understand that these images sound more terrible and awful than it seems like any of us deserve. I get that. You know, we might look at ourselves and say, yeah, you know, I am a sinner, but I'm, I'm not so bad that I should be splayed out on a field and let the birds of the air eat my flesh. Am I really that bad? We must remember that the vengeance here that is described is exacted by one who is faithful and true. This is not an arbitrary, over-the-top reaction of a divine narcissist upset that someone has ruined his party. This is the settled position of one who is faithful and true, one who alone knows himself, and one who alone knows the absolute infinite nature of his justice and holiness. The only, we, we think that this messianic vengeance is extreme and undeserved because we think it doesn't fit the crime 
which means we don't understand the nature of the crime. The nature of the crime is that every sin is an offense against the infinite holiness of God, the absolute holiness of God, and we are inadequate to understand and comprehend that. Uh, There is an infinite disproportion between God's absolute holiness and human sin. Any sin against infinite holiness is a stain against it. The lie that someone tells his boss on Tuesday deserves the punishment of hell because it is a stain against the infinite holiness of God. Against the infinite holiness of God, the affair that your neighbor committed that destroyed his marriage, that deserves the same level of punishment. Are the lie and the affair equal? No, by by no means are they. But measured by infinity... They are both infinitely offensive against the holiness of God. The number 10 and the number 1 million are vastly different, but both are equidistant from infinity. Any sin against the absolute holiness of God deserves the same terrible judgment. And it's a judgment that is here presented as so awful, so unsettling, so fearful, that the best the writers can come up with is eternal flames or the devouring of flesh. These are terrible images. They are of a reality we don't want to imagine, and so we put it out of our mind. Jesus, the Messiah, will return, and with him will come his judgment, his wrath, his terror upon those who oppose him. I'm not going to tell you what to do with that information yet. Just ponder it. Let it sit for a while. Understand your temptation. You know, last night we were watching this movie, and I watch strange movies. I confess that. But in the movie, the, one of the characters, his teeth started to fall out. And so he's starting to pull his teeth out of his mouth. Well, what did I do? I do what any, uh, you know, strong, masculine, male-type figure did. I covered my face. I didn't want to watch teeth. I mean, that's just too horrible for me to think about. That's what we do with this. It's so horrible to think about. We cover our eyes. We don't want to see it. Don't do that. Take your hands away. Stare into it. This is something certain. And we need to think about its implications. The Messiah's vengeance is real. And it's awful. But we also need to see it's essential. We have to see it. And we are to see it, by the way. Remember that. Uh, John says, then I saw heaven opened. In verse 11 and verse 17, he says it again. Then I saw an angel standing to the sun. And we've read earlier in the book that John's instructions were to write down what you see. Why? So that we could see it as well. It's important for us to see this. Why? Well, There are those who take this information and use it to scare. That's not my intention here. Oh, sure, this is something terrible. Something terrible to avoid. And yet, I don't think I see in Scripture, correct me if I'm wrong, we can talk afterwards. I don't think I see in Scripture anyone using God's vengeance as a means of scaring people into salvation. Perhaps we are sinners in the hands of an angry God and 
Yet we need to understand that those are the hands of mercy. We need to understand that the terrible vengeance of God exists not just because we are sinners, but also because we have been sinned against. You have been sinned against. Some of you have been terribly sinned against. In various ways, people, perhaps you directly, have been subject to terrible things done by terrible people against your body, perhaps, against your person, against your reputation, against your loved ones. Awful things have been done. They have happened to you. They've happened to those you love. They've happened to others. They've happened to those nameless. And Scripture is clear in these matters that it is not ours to avenge those things. Paul says in Romans, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is his answer to that which Paul says in Romans. He will repay. You will, you who have had been sinned against, God will repay those who have sinned against you. The wrong that has been done to you has been seen. It has been known. It will be judged and it will be condemned. Perhaps no one else knows. Perhaps no one else believes you. But the omniscient God knows the truth, sees you, and vengeance is most certainly His. It is a vengeance that is executed by Him who is faithful and true. This is essential. We, 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 we spend our lives as children saying, life's not fair. And then we became grown-ups and we have kids and we tell them, life's not fair. Ultimately, life is fair. God will get His vengeance. The cry of your heart has reached heavenly ears and His vengeance is real and it's awful. But we need to see this as well. As we stare here into the face of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and we see His fury displayed in awful colors, visions of birds eating the flesh and of sinners, they're awful visions. But we're meant to stand in awe of those visions. Why? Because I said earlier, you don't escape it. But the way we have stepped aside of the weightiness of the wrath that is born out of the Messiah's vengeance is to see, therefore, the depth and character of what we have been spared by this very same Messiah. If the fate of those outside of the covenant of God is to have their flesh eaten away bit by bit, if you are in Christ, know that is what you have been spared Spared by the Messiah himself, stripping off his robes and voluntarily offering his own flesh in the place of ours. It is only with this in mind that we can fully and adequately understand the cross. The vengeance of God that you deserved infinitely was voluntarily received by the Messiah as he hung on the cross. <coughs> And suffered what? The dereliction of his father. Where his father turned his eyes away from him. He spent an eternity on that cross outside of the father's affection. <coughs> we have this very odd 
to some saying in the Apostles' Creed. We read it. We wonder about it. We don't talk about it. He descended into hell. The Heidelberg Catechism explains it in this way, that Christ suffered hell on the cross. He experienced the hell that we were to, 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 to endure on our behalf on the cross, so that, the Catechism says, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, by the way, you may feel that now after all this heaviness, during attacks of the deepest dread and temptation, we can be assured that Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. That is the hands of mercy. That is divine mercy. That God our Savior, our Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, descended into hell so that we would not need to do so. That's why I say it's not fear. It's not fear that wins me to the cross. It's not fear of damnation that draws me to Jesus. It's the mercy of God in Jesus that wants me to be his. I know what some of us think. We hear a message like this and we begin to worry about those we love. I read a comment recently from an online nutritionist who was giving counsel in advance of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And her, her counsel was this, keep your eyes on your own plate. <laughs> I actually love that. You know, don't look at her, you're going to eat all that? You know, translation, what kind of a glutton are you? No, keep your eyes on your own plate. Don't judge what others are doing, you know. Don't worry them with your better choices. Just keep your eye. All right. That's kind of the advice that Jesus gave to Peter when Peter, at the end of the Gospel of John, is asking about the Apostle John, what's going to happen to them. And Jesus basically says, what is that to you? He could have just said, keep your eyes on your own plate, Peter. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to do. Um, Think about your own relationship with Christ. Flee to the cross. Hold on to Jesus yourself. Hold on to him yourself. Beg of his favor. It is rich, and he gives it to all who ask. As for others, pray that they too would see the mercy that is in God and never underestimate the reach of divine mercy toward others whom you love and whose hearts you do not know. The Messiah's vengeance is real, it's awful, but it's essential. But it's not, of course, where the world began. The world began with beauty. The world began with a harmonious song in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the Christ figure, brings creation into being by a song. He sings it into existence. And the, the resonance of that song continues over the holidays. Some of you have been able to experience some of the resonance of the beauty of that song, of the song of God, and in some of the glorious relationships we have, and some of the places you've been able to go, the things you've been able to see. The creation does continue to sing. The beauty is there, but the scriptures tell us that creation also groans. 
and we groan with it. We are to forget neither the singing nor the groaning. One author notes that the creation contains immense destructive powers and seemingly pointless sufferings. We are all liable to that suffering at any moment. There are moans. The creation moans and groans. There's dissonance in the beautiful song of God, but the creation's moaning as the disharmonies are the disharmonies crying out to be made right. And the beauty of this picture, the reality of this picture and those images that will follow it in the days ahead. And by the way, Rob, I am not just aiming to finish Revelation. I will finish Revelation, believe it or not, will be that God will make it all right. And a part of that is the Messiah's terrible and yet merciful vengeance against all evil. But through Christ, receive for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, even for your hard word, because it's a hard world, and sometimes we need you to speak honestly to us. I pray, God, that you would settle upon our hearts the truth that has been spoken and quickly leech away that which is not true, that we might hold on to you, consciously and forever aware of your favor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.